0: Hi, this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey,
1: everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial
0: Hospital DeSoto.
1: And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine
2: physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System.
0: Well, today we are so incredibly excited. We have Dr. Rick May from Visient. Uh, with us today. And Dr. May, if you would, tell us a little bit about your role at Vizient and about your background.
3: Well, thanks, Skip, and thanks for having me today. I really appreciate uh, the chance to talk with you all. Uh, it should be fun today. The uh, So I, Vizient, I'm called a senior principal. It's kind of like a senior vice president, but most importantly, I run the Vizient Clinical Quality Improvement Consulting Team. So I'd like to tell folks, because I have the best job of visiting that there is. I get to go around the country, working with hospitals really focusing on patient care and improving quality in a variety of different areas. So um, my, my job is always interesting, always fun, um, always changing, certainly. So uh, my, my background, I spent more than 20 years working in Colorado as an orthopedic trauma surgeon, trained there at University of Colorado and also at the uh, Denver Health. Probably relevant to this conversation is prior to my doctor life, I was a big data analytics computer nerd. I, um, my graduate work was all in advanced mathematics and biostatistics. I was lucky enough to actually get to work for NASA for a while in their life. Life Sciences Division doing artificial intelligence development and some other things there. So anyway, it turns out it's been pretty amazing, actually, how much all of that past uh, data work actually plays in the work that we do to, now with consulting. It really have to, you have to tie together that, that whole data component with the quality improvement work. So it's been a, been a good combination for me.
1: Dr. May, once again, thank you very much for being here. And I find it very interesting that uh, how did an orthopedic surgeon you know, we we all kind of stereotype orthopedic surgeons. How did how did
0: you <laughs> <laughs> and
1: how did you transition into the uh, into the improvement world? You mean I had the big time orthopedic? And, and I say <laughs> that jokingly. <with> the <laughs> you, you know what I mean. I, I, I do. I totally do.
3: And um, it's such a interesting story. So I, I basically was doing a lot of orthopedics, and I was again as a trauma specialist primarily I was running the ortho trauma service for four hospitals, never for a long time. And that was great work. I enjoyed that a bunch. And then actually just quickly over over breakfast one morning, I was talking to one of my internal medicine colleagues and uh, she was a very smart woman and she was internal medicine, not orthopedics, as you might imagine. So anyway, so she started talking about this new job that she had taken and was working with hospitals on quality improvement. And I was I was fascinated by the conversation. I was like, so wait, what do you do every day? And She's like, well, we get to go talk with hospitals about, about sepsis and pneumonia and, and infections. And so we ended up talking a little bit more. And she said, hey, listen, why don't you, you know, come check this out and maybe work with us a little bit? So long story short, I Started doing a little bit of consulting with her on a couple of engagements where they needed some surgery input, and then over time, I really, really enjoyed it. So I started doing less and less orthopedics. I kind of scaled down that work and did more and more consulting. And after about 10 years, I finally hung up my scalpel and said, "I'm going to do this full time." So it's been a, it's been a great transition for me. I really enjoyed it.
1: And I and I suppose your background in in mathematics, statistics, that that all was was very well suited. For, uh, for this improvement work with all the data that you look at and data that you analyze?
3: Yeah, I didn't plan it that way. Uh, I just really enjoyed the math when I was younger, growing up and all the computers and statistics pieces, but um, no, it's actually turned uh, really, really helpful. As you might imagine, so much of the work we do today, it's, it's really a combination of being able to sort through the vast, vast amounts of information of the data that hospitals have. And we, we, we know this. Hospitals are sometimes flooded with, with too much data and not enough information. So how to get in there, how to dig through that, pull out relevant information, and, and particularly given the hat that I wear is, is I always talk about, you got to pull out and translate in a way that really makes sense to all the clinicians, but certainly the physicians, because they, they want to be data driven. You got to put you know stuff in front of them that's reliable, that's actionable, that they understand, that they can relate to. And, and as, as you guys know, in general, if the data makes doctors look good, then the data must be great. If the, daughter ma- if the data doesn't make them look good, then the data must be crappy. So so in general, <laughs> you have to work very hard to make sure that data is solid across the board. Um, but as you might imagine, you, you got to get that body that, that in with the data, you have to have that data as a baseline, and then on top of that, you can start layering in the improvement work that we do. But without that data as a starting point, it's very difficult to get much much farther in in the process.
2: Yeah, and and speaking of the data coming out of hospital systems, you know, we, we've we talked a while about, you know, the quality of the data in our health record systems and how poor quality it is and sometimes how you can't trust it. Um, you know, how does that compare to the data you were dealing with at NASA and what have you seen as far as, I guess, the transition over the years as far as, um, you know, how good and reliable is, is the data nowadays?
3: Um, <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, the term that you guys have sure have heard is, is big, big at NASA with everybody, it's the whole garbage in, garbage out idea, right? And it, it's a risk in any industry. Um, uh, place at NASA, you have the advantage, there's a lot of very smart folks that are used to dealing with data and they do a lot of redundant work um, in a lot of different situations to make sure the data is as accurate as it possibly can be. Now, now that said, you guys may have heard there's a couple of times over the last few years, like one of the Mars landers, for example, actually ended up augering into the surface on, on entry into the Martian, Martian atmosphere because they simply did the math wrong. They, they blew Data basically, so it does happen at NASA. Even um, I, I think that. Which, but back to your point is that the challenge with hospitals today is again you have so much data. But at the end of the day, if you think about the sources, a lot of the times we're relying on really essentially non-clinical data, basically billing data, administrative data, to make decisions. And and we know it's not great, but we're stuck with it because we really nothing else to work with. It's either it's either administrative billing data or nothing at all. So I, one of the key things we like to emphasize is saying you know use the data you have, recognize its limitations. But when it comes to, for example, the billing data, we always have this common saying, which is that high-level administrative data, it tends to give you the questions. It doesn't really give you the answers, right? So, for example, if you look at the data and the data suggests, hey, maybe in our orthopedic surgery we have too high a renal failure rate, okay, that's good information, but you really can't hang your hat on that until you do the deeper dive. So we talk a lot about tying back that high-level data. Again, it's, it's not like it doesn't have use; it does. But understand its limitations, and then drill down, go into the charts. You know, look, as, look as much as you can to, for the information coming up. You know, as close to the bedside as you can get. Interviewing the nurses, talking with the folks there, and that's what helps really flesh out what's really going on. That's what'll give you the answer ultimately at the end of the day.
1: When when you say you work for, uh, you know, you work for Visient and you lead their Quality Improvement Consulting Group, and you know what does that look like when a hospital calls you guys up and says, "Hey, we um, we need y'all's help with our quality. What, what 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 do you guys do exactly?"
3: Well, the biggest thing is, and we actually sometimes get exactly that kind of a phrase question. We have problems with quality sometimes we don't know what that means. It's like, okay, you mean you're having problems with your quality from a scoring standpoint, like your CMS stars look bad. Sure, you have you have quality because you talk with your docs and they say there's a real breakdown in terms of your systems. is Is it a cultural issue? Is it a safety issue? So really, the first level of work is just really understanding much we re- Possibly can having them really clarify the, the, the question for us. What, what's their concern? What are they going after? Um, as you might imagine, there's a whole range of different stuff that may focus on. But once we have some clarity about what specifically it is, is, is it a, is it the CMS stars? Is it wow? We think our sepsis numbers are up. while wow, the docs and the operating room tell us we got a real problem developing here. Um, it, we, have, we have a pretty standardized approach. You might imagine we're going to pull all the data we possibly can and all the information we can. So again, there's data systems available and some of that stuff we'll pull it out. Like looking at CMS metrics, for example, CMS stars, there's a lot of national data we can get our hands on, which is helpful. A lot of things look more subtle. If the surgeons are worried about a safety issue in the operating room, there's not gonna be any data particularly made that really characterizes that very well. I mean, maybe the numbers show a little bit of a problem, but a lot of times it's a lot more subtle than that. So again, we'll go in, we'll actually do, again, chart reviews and interviews as much as possible. Um, and again, through that those conversations and really that information gathering process, that's where we start to get our arms around, You know, is this problem real? Is it significant? Is the performance we're seeing really out of whack with what you see around the country and other places? Um, once you kind of know that baseline, then the real work begins, which is to you know, go in, talk with the folks involved with us, the physicians, the nurses, the hospital administrators, and really share what we found, but really understand that you know, from their standpoint, one is the, the findings resonate with what they're seeing, what they're, they're thinking, but also talk about you know, solutions. In other words, what kind of recommendations can we give? What kind of solutions can we implement that are really going to work in their system? Cause you might imagine we, we work a lot of places. We just have some ideas of what's gonna work, but every hospital is unique. So you really gotta have those in-depth conversations to understand what's gonna really be a solution that'll work in a particular setting.
2: You talked a little bit about uh, CMS stars and some of the nationally reported data. And through some of the work that you all have done with us, um, you know, one of the big surprises that, I, that came to me was that how much of that data is already baked in for the years 2022, 23, 24 and even even out. <laughs> yeah. You know, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Because I, I think that would surprise the majority of. Uh, physicians. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question or a great comment. Jay.
3: It, it, it is is sort of a fascinating um, math problem if you think about it. So the, the bottom line is that when CMS or any other ratings organization looks at hospitals, as you might imagine, they want to be able to, to um, produce essentially statistically valid comparisons. So if you're going to call a hospital one star, for example, you really be able, have to be able to say confidently, hey, listen, we have enough data coming in that we're going to you know, be able to say, yes, you know, this this one star is different than the two, threes, fours, fives. In order to do that in certain areas, like take something like uh, heart failure mortality, for example, it isn't like there's vast numbers of people, you know with heart failure, dying in hospitals all over the United States, you know, every day It isn't like you have 100 patients come in with heart failure and half of them are going to die. So, for, for cohorts like that, in order to get statistically valid, you know, samples, they, the CMS or any other region agency has to go back um, and get years of data. And the challenge, because the processing time, oftentimes that data goes back, I mean, talking four, five, even six years. So, if you look at, for example, the CMS star ratings today, the 2021, it's published on the website right now, that data goes back as far as 2016, right? And it's three years worth of data. And why that's so critical, what you're, you're alluding to earlier was in order to fix that data, you got to roll off, off. You know, If it's bad, you got to roll off three years worth of data, but it's five years in arrears. So now you're talking about you're not going to be able to significantly change that metric, not for the 2022 scor- stores, um, scores, not for the 2023, maybe a little bit in 24, but more likely 25 and 26. And, and back to your point, 100 percent, obviously, the 2021 scores, that's already in the can. Interesting is 100 percent of the 2022 scores are already in the can. 92 percent of the 2023 scores are in the can. 2024, half of the data is already in the can. It's not until 2025 that you actually get enough new data. If you start working today, you have a chance to impact those 2025 scores. Otherwise, there's, there's no viable way to really change your scores
2: before that. And, and would you say that the majority of places you've been to recognize that, or are they pretty surprised when you, you – I mean, I was kind of frustrated when I heard those statistics. Yes, me too. <laughs> uh,
3: n- n- actually, it turns out I don't think anybody knows those numbers. Well. I sh- I shouldn't say nobody. Somebody somewhere must know it, but I have yet to go to a hospital anywhere where the physicians, administrators, the nurses there, that anybody really understands that dynamic. I think people know that the data is coming from the past, but people don't really appreciate how far in the past it is and how long it's going to take to roll off those bad quarters.
1: And and not only do do the hospitals, do we not know, understand that, but, but the public who, you know, they're making their healthcare decisions based on star ratings and i'm going to go to this hospital and or that hospital based on their star rating when when you know they're they're not making decisions based on the best available data and and my question is do you ever see that changing is there any way that that the public folks who are looking for high quality places to to get their health care that they can get you know quick up-to-date data
3: well i guess it's sort of a two part answer uh, one it's got to change because i mean the, the public obviously needs to know much more concurrent data i mean to tell you what happened half a decade ago about a hospital is not particularly helpful sure but but as importantly almost more importantly think about the teams in the hospitals that are trying to fix this stuff right the data being so far out of out of date you know so far in the past i've, I've had hospitals we talked to who have said you know, wait a minute, you're, you're talking to me about my cardiac surgery. The surgeons we have today aren't even the same surgeons we had five years ago. So it's, it's a whole different group of folks. So there's no question about the fact that it's got to change in the future. Now, the question is, how is it going to change? Because right now, if you look at the national radio agencies like CMS or LeapFrog or all of them, you know, they have a pretty much a set cadence in terms of how they bring that data in. Again, it's all continuously based on administrative data. So it's sort of a regular cadence how that information comes in. And so unless we sort of as a country or even as individual hospitals start shifting over to saying, let's go to a better source, again, a source closer to the bedside, let's start looking really at an information EMR, don't wait six months to pull that out, pull it out much more concurrently, um, be able to process it much more quickly and get it back, not just into the hands of our of our physicians, our providers, but also to the public in some way. I mean, that's what we have to move toward. I, I think honestly, though, guys, it's it's I, I'm not holding my breath to say that, that any of the big national organizations, the rating organizations are going to do that anytime soon. I think it's going to have to come from the hospitals themselves are going to have to make that change.
2: You know, so so going back to to one other thing that you were talking about, when you do this consulting work, um, you kind of help hospitals prioritize what to work on first. I think, you know, one of the issues we have is is there's too much data. And so whenever we do our our quality close, our quality reporting, you know, we go through 30 to 50 metrics. And, you know, how do you as an organization decide, hey, I'm going to fix this one. This one means most important to me. I feel like in the past we've kind of done that haphazardly. Uh, but how do you help organizations uh, approach, you know, where to prioritize? Because you can't do it all at once. No, no
3: that's, that's really critical. I, I think you know it's important to think about if you if you start racking up the metrics in some of these national scorecards. If you say, hey, our hospital, we want to look at our CMS stars and our CMS pay for performance stuff, and also maybe let's throw in, I don't know, let's throw in Leapfrog and US News and maybe health grades. Um, You've just thrown in together about 527 something like that, give or take metrics, right? So, I mean, there's no way that a hospital can even take on, you know, probably 10% of that. It's crazy, crazy how much information there is. So it really comes down to having a lot of, uh, again, very, uh, you know, very specific conversation about, you know, what is a hospital, you know, are we going to care about? Is it that CMS is is so important to us from a revenue standpoint? It's so important to us from, um, you know, that scoring, that's something that our our, our patients are hanging their hats on. That's going to be kind of the thing we're going to focus on. Is it going to be some of the other scoring systems? But the key is to go through and say, okay, these are the metrics that are really most important important to us in terms of our overall strategy, strategically in terms of how we want to deliver quality, but also strategically in our market. Then even what you're doing now, you say, hey, we're going to make it CMS or we're going to make it CMS and leapfrog. Even then, you'll still be stuck with too many metrics to track. So a lot of the work we do, um, which we've done with, with Baptist and some other systems, is take all those metrics, all 500 plus of those, put them into essentially a Big analytics tool that says, okay, we know that the weights of some of these things are different. We know there's some overlap in the different score score systems. We know that if you want to move your stars fast, your scores fast, you got to look at stuff that's not quite as far in the you know the distant past. You know, you look at take that all into account. By doing that, it's actually you can through the analytic process, you can identify the top you know 10 to 15 to 20 or so metrics that because the way they're weighted very heavily, because they're duplicated across multiple scorecards, because they can be fixed relatively quickly, we also take into account how hard or how easy it is to fix certain things. Because, you know, certain areas in the hospitals are really tough to fix and some are a lot easier. If you put that in, into the system, you can find that top 20 or so that has become now a reasonable list for the take, hospital to take on. Um, you can then go in and also say, hey, okay, listen, what's what's realistic in terms of improvements? Can we, can we improve this 2%, 5%, 10%, 20%? And we work with hospitals a lot to talk with their teams and say, hey, listen, based on what you've done, what do you think? We can share our experience nationally to say, hey, when it comes to heart failure mortality, yes, a 10% improvement year over year is probably appropriate, but you're never going to get 50 but something like central line infections, hey, we know you can actually improve that faster, so here are some targets. Um, but by going through the math and then having that very, you know, sort of in-depth conversation with the hospital, you are able to say, listen, we can take that 500 list and condense it down to something manageable like 20, and then really be able to put some very clear-cut goals in front of the
1: teams that you know, for them to work on. Sure. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, first and foremost, we all want to improve the quality of care that, that we give our patients. But... How important is our documentation and, and truly documenting how how sick and how ill the patient is? Because you know CMS and and other scorecards, you know, they give you a risk of mortality, and and you know this patient should have X risk of dying in the hospital, and and it seems like a lot of times we we fail to truly document how sick the patient is, which, which can affect affect our scorecard.
3: Well, you bring up a critical point, because if you think about how the, how the scoring system works, but even even how we collect and manage and respond to data, um, if that process is incomplete on the front end, right, collecting that information, that background information on our patients, um, we're never going to be able to, to one, op- optimize our scores, certainly, because so much, as you, as you mentioned, so much relies on that risk adjustment. But, but even more than that, in my mind, what's more important is the fact if you're not doing a great job of identifying the risk factors that are important to that patient's care, and I mean not just somebody's gonna write in a random chart someplace that nobody's gonna see again, but actually identifying it, identifying it correctly, categorizing it correctly, and then setting up a system that you can respond to it at every step in that care process. If you can't do that consistently, then you're never gonna be able to deliver really optimal care to patients. So it's absolutely critical in terms of, you know, capturing that information for a scoring standpoint. If the hospitals want to maximize revenue, it's important for that as well. But but I would contend that the most important part of that whole process is you got to capture the information to be able to respond. And one last piece I was mention is the different different you know treatments, different um, uh, conditions in the hospital. You that's a different set of information that becomes important. There are certain risk factors that are very important for orthopedic surgery, but are much different in terms of you know different set of risk factors that are important in heart failure management. So it's, it's, it has to be patient individualized and also
2: condition specific. Sure. Sure. To, to go along with that, you know, talking about, you know, so, suppose you identified heart failure, mortality, pneumonia mortality is something you wanted to improve upon or, or length of stay. What yeah. are the, the tactics that you, that Vizient would, would suggest as, as far as, um, you know, leading to an improvement with that? How much of it is a change in clinical practice? Um, you know, I, I find it hard to imagine that, it, you know, a hospitalist at one hospital versus another really treats a heart failure patient that much different than another hospital um, but you know what are the other things that go into it that you can adjust to to lead to improvements there
3: you know that that's such a critically important point so We really look at improvement in any particular area in particular metric for example you really break into three different parts and we somebody drive it by this little this little you know pie graph and kind of divide it up what's fascinating though is that, that pie graph looks radically different depending on which area you're working on. So let's take your first example of heart failure and mortality. Um, you're right, if you look around the country, it isn't like nobody knows how to manage heart failure. I mean, most of the hospitals we go to, they have good clinicians, they're smart folks. They they recognize from a clinical standpoint really how to manage heart failure pretty effectively. So in that particular area, to come in and say, wow, we're gonna radically change their, their clinical care at the bedside and make some big improvements, it, it's not gonna happen, right? There, there isn't any really, there's no, no real area for lift there. What's fascinating, though, is for most hospitals, there's a huge opportunity on the documentation piece of that because the risk adjustment is so critical. And almost every hospital we go to, they have missed opportunities to capture those codes, those conditions correctly that will add to the risk adjustment. And it's amazing. You can take a pretty lousy looking hospital and by simply cleaning up that risk factor capture, all of a sudden they look like a much better hospital. Um, the third component, which, which is sort of sort of a, a wild card, which is there's other things sometimes like, like use of palliative care, we call them the programmatic elements. That's our, our third leg of that stool. Um, sometimes hospitals are very effective using things like palliative care or other types of you know how to, how to get the patients into the hospital more effectively. Sometimes it's not a factor. Um, let me contrast that with heart failure example, where it's so much documentation, very little clinical, with something like central line infections, clapsy, right? Clapsy, there's, there's no real significant risk assessment that adds in. There's no, not a lot of programmatic stuff like, like palliative care you can do that's going to help it. It's almost purely a clinical change. And what's fascinating is there you do see huge variants. If you go around the country and look at different hospitals, how they manage their lines, oh, it's incredible, the difference. Some are fantastic at it. The nurses have been trained. They're consistently updated. They have management systems that track how they're tracking those lines and the dressings. And those hospitals have extraordinarily low levels of, of central line infection. Um, Converse, you can have a very similar hospitals, similar patient populations who are not doing a good job of managing those lines. And they have sky-high rates of collapsing. So that's one of those areas that's 100% essentially, or maybe 99%. Clinical, and the rest is tiny. Heart failure mortality, completely opposite. Very, very little clinical opportunity. Much bigger coding and documentation. And the key is just to think about all those factors that go into it, because you have to really deliver the whole package in most cases to get the improvement that you're looking for.
1: You know, you talk about you talk about coding and documentation, and I'm just thinking about during during my med- medical school and during residency, and I'm sure in y'all's as well, is that, you know, we weren't ever taught. No, we weren't taught this. I, I remember the first my first day on the job back in 1998, you know, in July, uh, the office manager in my in my clinic, she gave me a laminated card and it had these, you know, nine, nine, two, five, three, nine, nine, two, five, two, nine, nine, two, three, one. And I was like, what are these? And they're, <laughs> These are like, well, these are your codes that you have to, you know, code for your for your visits. And. I mean, it just went totally over my head. And do you do you think, Rick? Do you think we more of that needs to be integrated into our into our health education, or is that something that we can learn as we get out? Uh, I, I think it's
3: got to be integrated more into the health education. There's no question. I mean, I always use the example of like DRGs. How, how many doctors you know that know much about DRGs or what goes into their DRGs? Maybe one or two. But like, I know like my surgeon colleagues, you start throwing out things like a DRG 470, those guys have no idea what you're talking about. They, they may know a CPT, but they have no idea about the DRGs. And then the more sophisticated questions about like which risk factors are important in a particular, you know, DRG or procedure, they have no idea at all. So I think to your point, I think we need a lot more education about it, you know, during our training to get us started. But I also think we'd have to be realistic. I mean, if you if you train them back in med school and then kind of let doctors sort of go their own way, they're going to push back and resist that all the way through. It needs to be really a lot of conversation about how to make that, you know, really reemphasize the importance of that all the way through, but also, frankly, as much as you possibly can, facilitate it. Make it easy as possible for the docs to be able to say, okay, I'm going to recognize this condition. I'm going to you know, be able to identify the risk factors that go into it. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can do now with, with electronic assistance through the EMR and everything else that can make that a lot easier for the docs. Because definitely more education in med school, but um, they're not going to retain it if you can't have a way to kind of reinforce it and make it easier for them to, to carry out that coding going forward.
1: Sure. Yeah, all I, all I remember about DRGs is that when when I first started, it was that the older surgeon he said, "Man, things were so much better before before the <laughs> DRG came." In. I think it was like 1985 or something like that. Yeah.
3: It makes you wonder what we're going to be telling the 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 youngsters that come along after us. What are we going to tell them was so much better back when we were young? I don't know what that's going to be exactly. So
2: yeah, um, yeah, before ICD-10 maybe. Um, <laughs> exactly. There you go. You know, so so visiting. You know, obviously you you help with improving the the clinical quality, but also uh, visiting also helps with reducing costs and and, and that variation mm-hmm. that's out there. What can you tell us about? Um, you know, what you see at different hospitals as far as how they go about adjusting their operational costs and what things uh, can Visian help with to to reduce those?
3: Well, it's interesting, again, my, my primary focus is always the quality improvement piece, which again, that's what I really, that's what I love, that's what I'm passionate about. Um, but I get, I get asked to, you know, weigh in on some of those conversations where hospitals are talking with their providers about about costs, about operational things. Um, you know, it's interesting, we, we advocate really strongly for for a model that seems to work pretty well. We around the country, the place that are really successful at this, which is sort of based on the, the, the sort of simple tenet, which you guys I'm sure will totally understand is the, the doctors are much better if you're doing stuff with them as opposed to doing stuff to them right? So we talk a lot about the idea of physician-led governance, and that, that's physician-led governance, not just in areas of quality, which seems to be kind of a sort a, of a natural one people go to, but physician-led governance in terms of really resource utilization, in terms of cost, in terms of operations, and, and really talk about the fact that it's, it's critical to work with the docs early, get them involved as real partners. I'm not talking about just a group that's going to sort of rubber stamp decisions being made by somebody else, but get them into the process and really work with them to, to educate and bring them up to speed facilitate that process for them a lot of times hospitals will start with quality as a way to kind of you know have the docs cut their teeth in that area if they're most comfortable with that but after a while say listen okay if we're going to be really good stewards of resources we have to look beyond just the clinical care we're delivering we got to look at how we're how we're purchasing things what drugs we're using and what what prosthetics we're using in the operating room because ultimately in the day the money comes from you know our system our patient population and if we're not looking out for that, our patients are gonna suffer at some level. So we talk a lot about get the docs involved early, you know, have them be involved in that process as much as possible. Don't try and you know jam it down their throats. They're never gonna like that or put up with it very well. If you can get them as true partners, um, these are smart folks. And once they kind of buy into it and understand the importance of it, we see that they can do great things in all those arenas.
2: So, so far we've talked mainly about hospitals and hospital quality. Uh, but I know you'll do work on the ambulatory side as well. Um, I I don't know if that side of, you know, publicly reporting ambulatory data is as mature as the hospital side, but what can you tell us about uh, where the direction in, in ambulatory quality reporting is going?
3: Well, as I think you all know, I mean, the, the biggest problem with the ambulatory side right now is if you think about it from an organized data standpoint, it's basically a huge black hole. I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges we have. If you think about it, if you really want to understand even the hospital outcomes when you, say, do a knee replacement or a cabbage or even heart failure management, it, it's great that we don't we don't kill people in the hospital or give them a significant complication. But after you replace the knee, what you really need to know is, you know, how are they functioning in two weeks and what's their pain like? And, you know, what's happening a year after their surgery after their cabbage, are they more functional? Um, The biggest challenge right now is, again, the data is in very different sources. Um, And again, it's the same problem we see on the inpatient side. Most of the data we have access to to today is, is administrative billing data. So it's not without some purpose, some use, but it's just, again, it's very disorganized and it's hard to get your hands around. So it's really sort of in its infancy in many ways about how that outpatient data is, you know, is being pulled in and collected and analyzed. It's, it's sort of the next great frontier for us because clearly at a minimum, so much of the care is shifting to the, to the ambulatory setting and things like ASCs for some of the surgeries. But we know that 95% of the care we provide to patients is not happening in the hospital, right? It's all outside the hospitals. So we have to make a much bigger effort to get our hands around that. But it's going to take a leap. It's going to take a big, you know, sort of fundamental jump to be able to start saying, okay, what kind of data do we really need to be collecting on the outpatient side and start being able to use that effectively to improve patient care? Because right now, we've looked for a lot of different sources, and there are little bits and pieces, little sort of, you know, bright lights in the darkness out there. But I'll tell you, as far as consistent data on most patients, it's just not available in any any kind of bulk way.
2: And it seems like, uh, you know, the national government, tends to change direction every every few years. You know, we start off with, with MIPS and HEDIS, and now we're on Macra, you know, there should be a new acronym in, in a couple of years, I would imagine.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, you got you got to you got to appreciate the effort, at least. They think they're looking in that direction. Um, but but I think I mean, honest, ha- having looked at this ourselves, I, I think one the reason they struggle is it's a really tough problem. It's a tough problem. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's data tools out there that people are starting to use to collect that. We're, we're pulling in a lot more information through through our company Vizient, from the outpatient side um, as it comes in. One of our challenges figure out what to do with it. Again, like I said. It- it tends to be incomplete in a lot of cases. We don't get it from everybody. We don't get it on every patient. It's very practice dependent in a lot of ways. Um, but I think the government has the exact same problem. They, they struggle with you know, better data because for Medicare, they can get pretty much all the outpatient data from Medicare, but it's the same thing, it's, it's billing data. So how, how do you turn that billing data into really viable clinical information you can use to improve care?
0: Well, well, Dr. May, this has been fantastic listening. I always think about, uh, you know, there's a there's a phrase when it comes to strategic deployment that a friend of mine, Pascal, wrote a book called "Getting the Right Things Done," and I think of that phrase when we talk about this because it's really about what do we focus on with the data, and and we really have to decide what do we not focus on, because right. there's so much data. But I'm just so thankful for you, Dr. May, uh, so thankful for the time that you're spending with us today, the time you're, that you're spending with Baptist and helping us figure that uh, situation out and what to focus on and what not to focus on when it comes to our quality data. So just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to say a big, big thank you for your time today and, and for the great work that you're doing.
3: Well, well Skip, you're very welcome, and uh, thank you for having me on today. It's always uh, great to have these kind of conversations. I really enjoyed it a lot, so uh, my pleasure.
0: Thanks a lot, Rick. Thank you. Welcome. All right. Thanks. Have a great day.